Hi everybody and welcome to New Hope Church. Whether it's your first time with us or you join us regularly, we're so glad that you're here. Even though some of us didn't expect to be here today, we are and we are glad you're here. My name is Ian Buckley. I'm the founding pastor of New Hope Community Church. And our hope today is that you'll be encouraged in your faith as we worship and study God's word together and as we navigate the change in circumstance with calmness and confidence in God. Now, I want to start this morning by reflecting for a few moments on the words of C.S. Lewis. He wrote a very insightful book called The Problem of Pain, and it's all about the role of trials in our lives. He says this, I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow, or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday, or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction, sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I'm overwhelmed. And all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart. That my true good is in another world and my only real treasure is in Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed, and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. Friends, isn't that just like human nature and the nature of tribulations? See, suffering under tribulation is a major thing that we've been looking at for the past eight weeks. We've already seen Peter's addressing Christians that are suffering, and they're going through desperate circumstances, many of which were at that stage undeserved, they were unfair, and they were unexpected. Now today, we're going to take a closer look at the fiery trials through which sometimes we are called to walk. Now we want to learn from God's word to help us to get through those tricky times. So the first thing we want to look at are the practical truths about trials. So before we dive into today's text, I want to turn to the book of James, Jesus' stepbrother, to get an overview of these trials. Now count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now from these three verses, we can learn four truths about trials. Number one is that trials are common for Christians to encounter. James underlines the word when, not if. Second, trials 
come in various categories. Oh, they may be physical trials. There can be emotional trials where your, your emotions are up and down like a yo-yo. There can be financial trials. There can be certainly relational trials or even spiritual trials. It could come through a knock on the door of your own business or that knock that comes to your own home that you didn't want to hear. Maybe there's a sudden interruption into your life. There's a car accident or a prolonged and drawn out court case. That's the opposite extreme. A sudden one or a prolonged trial. Trials may be of a very public nature. Or they could be very private. And often they can be directly related to our own sins or the sins of others. Or again, not even related to any sin at all. Thirdly, trials put our faith to the test. They put our faith to the test. So no matter the source of the suffering, what trials do is they drive us back to the basics and they bring us back to the bedrock where our foundation should be resting, and that is Jesus Christ. Fourthly, without trials, there would be no maturity. We'd be basically spoiled babies. We'd never been tested. Now, James says we experience trials so that we may become perfect and complete. Now, occasional trials, well, we don't mind them so much because they are light and they are brief and they're soon forgotten. Other times, trials have that habit of leaning heavily upon us and they leave us exhausted and sometimes they can even put us on the sideline for a period of time. And this is what Peter is talking about when he writes of the fiery ordeal that we're going to get to. So today I want to talk about how do we gain strength for the fiery ordeals that will inevitably come into our lives. Now Peter focuses this passage on the more intense form of suffering, not just the occasional one. The fiery ordeal, the ordeal that we face, the agonizing experience. Now it's the same type of term, this fiery trial, that John describes in God's judgment in the end times and also on Babylon. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 18, verse 9 and 18. So here, Peter has in mind a particular circumstance of enduring together. And he wants to focus on their, or in this case, our reaction to these trials. How do you and I react? Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, there's that word, when it comes up, uh, when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, interestingly, though, surprise is actually and usually our first response. And we say things like, I can't believe this is happening. Or I can't believe it's happening to me. Now, maturity in the Christian life is much like maturity in the classroom. 
It's measured by our ability to withstand the tests that come our way. And that's without having them shake our foundation or throw us into an emotional tailspin. Now, Peter says here that our reaction should should go beyond being not surprised. Notice again how James, though, echoes Peter's thoughts. Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various uh, trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, sometimes, I don't know about you, but it's very tempting not to want to have the trial have its full effect because it's like, get me out of here. How can you choose to consider trial a reason for joy? It's a staggering command. You know, that we're supposed to choose to be joyful in situations where joy would naturally be our last response. Well, Peter, like James, directs us to the healthier motive of joy. He says this in the Phillips Version. When trials come, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. So those who trust God ought to exhibit, he's saying here, a dramatically different positive response to the difficulties that come into our lives. Our attitude is to be one of joy. That's genuinely rejoicing. This is not joyful anticipation for trials. He's not saying that. Instead, it's joy during the trials. So joy is based on the confidence in the outcome of the trial. It's a startling realization that trials actually can represent the possibility of growth in your life and in mine. Now, in contrast, most people are happy when they escape trials. But James here encourages us to consider it joy in the very face of trials. The response he's describing may include a variety of feelings, but it's not simply based on emotions. And neither is James encouraging believers to pretend to be happy. Because rejoicing goes beyond happiness. See, happiness is centered on earthly circumstances and how well things are going, how well things are going here. On the other hand, joy is God-oriented rather than event-oriented. Because it centers on God and His presence in our experience. See, if we get our eyes off God in the middle of our difficulties, we'll sink. Now, why consider it all joy? Well, the Bible says because trials enable us to enter a closer, more intimate relationship with Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says this, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So, If we endure the suffering faithfully, we will receive a future reward, the scriptures say. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Remain steadfast, there's those words, 
under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Trials, therefore, friends, becomes or become a means to a greater end. That means that we have the opportunity to have a deeper fellowship with Christ on earth and a rich reward from him in heaven. So that's how to react. Now let's look at what to remember. Number one, trials provide an opportunity to draw on God's power. We need to remember that trials provide an opportunity to draw on God's power. So when we're faced with excruciating trials like these people in 1 Peter were, we easily come to an end of ourselves. It's that desperate point where we can become quickly confused, mentally or emotionally drained. We can be physically exhausted and spiritually we can feel spent. And from a human perspective, we often think this is the worst possible situation to be in. But from a divine perspective, this is the precise condition that's necessary to draw you and I closer to God. We are never more dependent upon the Holy Spirit's strength than when we've come to the absolute end of ourselves. Another way to say that is, we never know that God is all we need until God is all we have left. Now, as long as we operate under the illusion that we can handle all these things by ourselves, we will wallow in spiritual weakness because we'll be trusting in our own ingenuity and our own strength, be it mental, physical, emotional, relational, financial. But when we finally come to that point in our lives where we admit that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, John 15, 5, then when we get to that point, we can begin to draw on his divine power because we reach out for it. We rely on it. Now, this is especially true when we are reviled or pushed back for our faith in Christ. God promises to provide strength by his spirit. He says, in this way, we are blessed even in the midst of unfair treatment. Verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So remember, you're never more a recipient of God's strength than when trials come upon you. Because it normally takes our eyes off the panic and into the prayer mode. This is especially true when, again, we're reviled in the name of Jesus, when we're insulted for him. The highest privilege is actually to suffer for the sake of Christ. And at those times, the Holy Spirit brings you strength and a sense of God's glory when you're under the gun for him. Now, if you go and you read the account of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60, that's exactly what happened to him. Secondly, remember that sometimes in this life, some of our suffering is deserved and can be shameful. Verse 15. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. So Peter here is making the point that not all suffering results in blessing. So if believers must suffer, Peter's saying it should be because of your faith, for that alone results in blessing. He's saying believers ought not to be counted upon those who steal or murder or do evil or meddle in other people's matters. Such people deserve reasonable punishment and suffering that they receive, and there's no blessing in that. Chapter 2, verse 20 in the NRSV says, If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? If the fiery ordeal comes as a result of sinful behavior or poor choices, then actually we're not suffering for God's glory at all, but we're merely reaping the consequences of the seeds that we have sown. You can read more about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Third, the third thing Peter wants us to remember is this. Most suffering should not cause us to feel shame. Most suffering should not cause us to feel shame. Verse 16. Yet if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, the word Christian was the, meant believers who followed Christ. And disciples who were first called Christians were called that in a place called Antioch. Friends, no one wants to suffer. And there's a certain amount of disgrace in any sort of public suffering or a certain amount of shame. But to be insulted publicly, which is what Peter's driving at here, publicly for one's faith, for being a Christian, should not be considered a disgrace. Instead of shame, we should feel honored when we suffered for the Lord. But when the apostles suffered for Christ, I want you to notice their perspective in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The fourth thing Peter is reminding us here is suffering is usually timely and needed. Suffering is usually timely and needed. Verse 17, the first part of it, 17a. For it is time for judgment to begin in the house of God. Now, one of the more difficult things to keep in mind is that the house of God needs not only a daily dusting to keep the thing spotless, but a periodic sprinkling as well. Now, remember this. Next time you hear of some very unfortunate situation or circumstance arise in the church and is often published in the newspapers, friends, don't get disillusioned. Don't get discouraged. What you're really seeing there is God refusing to let dirt be swept under the carpet in his house. He doesn't want that. No sweeping stuff under the rug. And so he brings it out to the light. 
God's nature is to bring those things in darkness out into the light to be exposed and to be corrected. The fifth thing Peter reminds us of in this passage is in number five. There is no comparison between what we suffer now and what the unrighteous will suffer later. That's what he's saying. Verse 17b. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he's saying that if the righteous have fiery ordeals and trials now, imagine the inferno that the lost will face in the future. The fire will spread to those who do not obey the gospel of God. There's serious consequences for that. But for them, it will not be a refining fire. It will be a fire of judgment. Now, if you want to feel the weight of that a little bit more about Peter, what he's getting at here, take a moment to read Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. And just imagine the scene there. Or another passage will be 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. So far, Peter's told us how to react to trials and what to remember when we're going through trials. Two things. Now he concludes this passage by telling us on whom we are to rely. On whom we are to rely. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, the key word here in this verse is entrust. It's a, it's a banking term. It means to deposit. The idea of depositing a treasure into a safe and trustworthy place or safe and trustworthy hands. Now, when it comes to trials... What he's saying is, we need to deposit ourselves into God's safekeeping. And that deposit will yield eternal results and dividends. The idea of entrusting ourselves to God during trials is admirably demonstrated by Jesus' example on the cross where he commits his spirit into the care of his Father. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now, a little bit about personal growth through the heat that we feel. Firstly, the furnace of suffering provides not only light by which we examine our lives, but also heat to melt away the dross, just like the prodigal son's famine. That would have hurt. And the financial ruin and the waste. When we are humble, trials can bring us to our senses and bring us back to the Lord. As Proverbs 20 verse 30 says, sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. And could I add, stop pursuing things that we think will bring us ultimate happiness. So, trials can be a good thing. They can bring good into our lives. 
However, the common response to our trials is to either do two things, either resist them or to resent them. Going back to C.S. Lewis, he said, trials are not an elective in our Christian life, but they are a required, underline that, an underlined course, a required course. And this course, by the way, is a prerequisite to Christ-likeness. Sometimes, some of us find, though, that our tendency under the challenging and comprehensive trials that we face, our tendency is to wobble and sometimes even feel the pressure of wanting to drop out of the course entirely, especially if we feel alone in our trial. Remember Jesus' words on the cross. So if you're feeling disoriented in the test that you are going through right now, you need to check the course syllabus for just a couple of final guiding principles. So let me finish by giving you a couple of suggestions, both of them tied directly to 1 Peter 4.19, which have helped me face my trials without heading for the nearest exit when the pressure's on. Firstly, when trials come, it's important to remember that, number one, God is faithful and that you can rely on him. God is faithful and that you can rely on him. So contrary to what your circumstances may seem to tell you, God has not abandoned you. He will never abandon you. Forget about what the cynics and even the circumstances tell you. God has not forgotten you either. He's faithful. And you can trust that. And he's working out his purposes for you and his promises for your ultimate good. And you can read about that in Romans 8, 28. Finally, when trials stay, and they will, some trials will stay, it's important to remember to do the right thing and to take refuge in him and rest in him. Do the right thing and take refuge in him and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful and you want us to trust you. In the good times and the bad times, during sunny days and things are going sweet, to the days where things are looking grey and uncertain. Father, we're so grateful that we can rely on you, that you're the rock in our lives. And we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to go through this life with you as our pilot. Holy Spirit, help us to cast all of our care upon you. Because, Lord, your word says, and you've proven time and time again, that you care for us. Your Holy Spirit tells us not to worry or to be anxious. Father, because you say, who by worrying can add a single day to our lives? And the answer is clearly none. So you do not want us to worry. When we trust you, Lord, you calm our fears. And whatever mess we're in, you have promised to lead us forward and towards the light and the truth. Holy Spirit, would you use these circumstances that we're all experiencing to focus our attention back on you 
to find our refuge and our peace in you. Holy Spirit, remind us of the reality of your presence within us. 365, 24-7. And Lord, as your word says, may we know the reality of the truth that you will always keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed upon you. Amen. Thanks so much, folks, for joining us today. Hope you have a fantastic day, and we look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.